You are listening to the Mother Lab Podcast. Welcome to the seventh episode of the Mother Lab Podcast. Mother Lab stands for Maternal Outcomes for Translational Health Equity Research. The Mother Lab is run by Dr. Muta Anukaga, founder and director of the Mother Lab, housed at Tufts University School of Medicine. Dr. Ao is the Julia A. Okoro Professor of Black Maternal Health and Assistant Dean of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion at Tufts University School of Medicine. Dr. Ao is also a member of the Racial Inequities in Maternal Health Commission. My name is Iman and I'm a co-chair of the Community Engagement, Advocacy, and Policy Committee. I have just recently graduated from Tufts University and I have Amea Menta here with me. Thank you so much, Iman. Hi, I'm Amea Menta and I'm a co-chair of the community. I'm also a co-chair of the Community Engagement, Advocacy and Policy Committee, and I'm a rising junior, junior at Tufts University. Today we are joined by Dr. Charlene Collier and is a who is a board certified OB-GYN that practices in Mississippi and has served as a director of the State Perinatal Quality Collaborative and Maternal Mortality Review Committee. She serves on the ACOG OB Practice Committee and the Secretary Advisory Committee on Maternal and Infant Mortality. She's from New Jersey and she went to Brown for undergrad med school and med school and got her MPH from Harvard before her residency at Yale. So Dr. Kalia, you have a very, very impressive list of accomplishments. And we want to acknowledge that during a time when our reproductive rights are being incredibly threatened, it's more important than ever to study women's health. So we just wanted to know what got you interested in the field and what shaped your path to becoming an OB-GYN. Thank you both so much for the invitation and the opportunity to be here today. Um, so the so I'm originally from New Jersey, as you, as you mentioned in my bio. I always wanted to be a doctor since I was four. I don't have a good story behind that. I don't, I don't have any doctors in my family and really don't know apart from just answering the question, what do you want to be when you grow up? And saying doctor, what led me to it, but I stuck with it through my whole life. And it was always a surgical career that I was interested in through different phases of middle school and uh, grade school and then high school. And and when I entered high school, I actually wanted to be an orthopedic surgeon. I was a track runner and I thought I was going to do sports medicine of some kind, but the predominantly black and Latino public high school that I went to in Englewood, New Jersey, um, I began noticing or really experiencing and living through Um, many challenges that related to reproductive health, teen pregnancy, very common, uh, friends becoming pregnant, having abortions, needing to access birth control was just very salient and very, you know, prevalent. Um, As as we were trying to be students, this was all going on in the background. And I remember the school really not doing much about it. There wasn't, you know, even an assembly. If there were like two fights in the cafeteria, there would be an assembly gathered to say like, you know, to kind of course correct about the, what was going on in our school. Um, but after seeing, you know, more numbers of people becoming pregnant or just having issues, even an intimate partner violence, just becoming, you know, things you just have your friends going through or yourself going through and really no comment about it. I wanted to do something. I just felt like the need to do something. I started a little a club in high school. I called it TAPS. It was Teens, AIDS, Pregnancy, Sex, and STDs. I just came up with that acronym and we just wanted to gather and talk about these topics. And I would put posters up around the school and they would get taken down. And I got called to the principal's office for having the word sex on a poster. And I'd be like, but people are having babies. And so like putting it on a poster seems a little bit less intense than people actually having 
babies in high school. And um, I just knew then that I wanted to be a doctor that could address issues like that. But it was very obvious that those were not just medical issues. Um, Englewood as a community is actually interesting. I, I live in Mississippi now I'm from New Jersey, but my community in New Jersey was actually quite segregated. The high school I went to was 99%, I would say black and Latino in a town that was 50% white in a community where Englewood is one of the wealthier cities, but my public high school was lower income. So it was very clearly segregated and there was a race, there was both a racial and socioeconomic divide in this small town. And you didn't see the same problems in just neighboring communities less than five miles away. So this was obvious to me and I didn't have the words for it to call it, you know, wasn't social determinants of health or call it health disparities when I was in high school then, but I knew I wanted to be a physician, a physician who can impact that kind of thing, the drivers behind that, which wasn't going to be, you know, knowing surgery better, but that's what attracted me to becoming an OBGYN. And I wanted to become an OBGYN. So I could have, initially it was a really a direct impact on, on topics like that. After that, I started learning about statistics as they related to disparities in infant mortality, um, and particularly hearing that black infants were over two times more likely to die than white infants. And that really hit me hard and, and really expecting, okay, fine, with teen pregnancy, there's behavior issues, there's choices, but hearing like babies dying at higher rates um, was very you know, profound to me and understanding that, again, that wasn't a biological thing. Of course, I, I felt and I knew that inherently, you know, that it wasn't having anything to do with a difference in genetics or a difference in um, or that race as that indicator was something that created that difference, but really that it was from racism, it was from differences in treatment and the fact that it would go all the way to impacting infant lives was, again, something I just felt like the solutions had to be, you know, could come from medicine, but you had to have an understanding of public health. You had to have an understanding greater than um, classic medical care. So that's what brought me to that. I went to um, Brown and I studied sociology. I kind of knew I wanted to do medical pre-med, but I, I intentionally wanted to study more of broader areas in liberal arts and public health. Um, I got my MPH during medical school and just really tried to craft a whole career around being able to cover both of those areas, both medicine and, and public health. But it was definitely very much grounded in the reproductive inequities that you know, seeing even back then in the 90s that sadly are persistent today and frankly, you know, less safe as of today than they were even when I was a teenager in high school because many people did have access to safe abortion and they got them and they moved on with their lives and they went on to do great things and be happy and married and have kids. And now, you know, same teenagers facing the same things wouldn't have that, don't have that choice as of today, so. Thank you so much. Um, yeah, no, I, we both completely agree and definitely, definitely the community health major, just like at Tufts, we definitely were like, it was, consistently reiterated the social determinants of health and the number of different barriers women, children, and people experience and how definitely racial and ethnic minorities are disproportionately impacted. So uh, we were wondering that at this time of political rest, it's more important than ever to keep fighting for what we believe in and acknowledge the undue and disproportionate burden that this court decision places on minorities. Mm -hmm. How do you feel the recent news will impact your practice 
And how do you know when to draw the line between giving effective care and what the law is telling you to do? I know that this is a very heavy question. No, you know, it's funny. Like I moved from the Northeast where I did all my training, where I was at a residency that had complex family planning, where there was, you know, um, a Planned Parenthood right down the street to a state where, you know, my very first day um, working in the hospital, there was a presentation of a patient who was less than 10 weeks pregnant, but had to go to an ethics review committee to have a termination, who had multiple threatening, life-threatening medical conditions. She had multiple blood clots, had history of strokes. And this was one of those extreme cases that would have been a Tuesday morning in Connecticut. It wouldn't even have risen to the level of a presentation, but it had become, you know, the, the fact that it didn't happen on the day she presented, it happened days later because it had to go through several, you know, reviews um, of the chain of command at the hospital. So it's already working at a state hospital illegal to do elective termination. So it's not something performed at the hospital I work at. And everyone now knows of the one abortion clinic that was available um, in, in the whole state. And oh so, God. yeah, so that was, you know, that was just down the street and um, many OBGYNs, it just became unspoken. Like patients don't even tell their OBGYNs, they just know where they have to go and they would go there um, and then return or not return um, for, for further care. But I already have practiced in that environment quite a bit. We've had 15 week abortion bans already in place where patients would present with, you know, what would otherwise be, what is, I won't say otherwise, which fundamentally is a miscarriage, but, um, you know, water broken already with, you know, baby starting to deliver, but not able to offer the treatment to help facilitate that process, which truly is inevitable. There's no, you know, when you're 14 weeks pregnant or 15 weeks pregnant, your water breaks and already things are coming out, you know, already open, it's going to happen. Um, and not being able to intervene or some interpret that they can't intervene. And these are scenarios that lawmakers have no clue happen, right? Have no idea. Cause many med students may not know that exact scenario or college students, because that's something you learn in clinical practice, becoming a provider, unless you've lived through it personally, these are things you understand the nuances of as you practice medicine. And so that is not what anyone conceived of when they were writing that that law, but then we end up being the one applying it to these very nuanced personal clinical situations that were never dreamed of. So it's really almost ironic yeah. that the law can be written and just say, ban on a 15 week abortion, you can't do elective if there's a heartbeat. And then we're applying it to this vast array of very complicated clinical situations that people are going through ranging from, you know, um, infections that may be present or a not fetal, fatal fetal anomalies that are identified at that point in time, just the numerous array of the clinical scenarios that might lead someone to that at the hospital. <clears throat> again, where people are questioning, can we do this or what has to be done? So I've already been living in that reality that I think a lot of people were just jolted into unexpectedly. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, I, I, 
you know, it's sad because you really do know it's the, the stark difference between practicing medicine and politics and just having that kind of enter into that experience is, is really, has been, it has been tough and you never get used to it. Um, and it's not even safe now as it relates to additional care of like ectopics, which I never dreamed of would enter this conversation. Like never dreamed in a million years, someone might interpret what an ectopic is or misinterpret what an ectopic is that it would even be part of this conversation, but it has, or that birth control would enter this conversation, but it has. So a lot of things we, we take for granted as, uh, you know, can't be taken for granted. But I, I, I've definitely lived in both worlds of having that access and providing care to people with dignity and then having to um, switch over to having to think about things that have absolutely nothing to do with your clinical or medical training or judgment. Um, so it is a not a reality we should feel, com we should get used to <laughs> or yeah, would want anyone get so used to. I always wish that politicians could have medical degrees or, you know, just like sit in a clinic for a couple of days and yeah. be able to be. And some do, and some do, and some have the counsel of people, but I think um, you get to kind of turn a blind eye to whatever scenario you don't want to empathize with, you know, and, uh, and call it extreme or call it rare. But I think when you practice, you know, in a full scope and you really empathize and meet people where they are and live with those experiences. It takes time. Obviously it's not a snapshot, but um, um, any, I, I think that's why you're hearing a lot of voices outside of OBGYN kind of comment, you know, more, not just, you know, women's health or reproductive health providers, you know, acknowledging the nuance of being a clinician and caring for a patient um, um, for the, so, so yeah, that's been, um, my reality, again, I'm framing a lot of this in terms of extreme medical conditions, not that I feel like that's what is necessary to justify someone's access to choice or an abortion, um, but that's the reality I've been in, like that, you know, the, that, that's just the reality that it's been already in, in states that have had these laws, and now it is going to be even more extreme, and there is, um, so there, there, yeah, it's, it's been, um, you know, watching it happen to the rest of the country, but it's like, yeah, this has been our reality, sadly. And now it is even, you know, more than that to some extent. Yeah, well, thank, thank you so much for sharing that because I think being from Connecticut and Massachusetts, we were kind of forced into realizing what's happening all over the world. And we might've had more of an idea of both me and Amon just like working in women's health. But I think for a lot of the world, it's, it's just a, such an incredible fear for so many people. And like that feeling of just, complete political unrest and I think it's really important to acknowledge that what you're saying that this has been the reality for a while and there's just so many extreme cases that really need empathy at this point and yeah. I mean it ripples so far you know even into the even the the family planning or, or birth control I had a patient the other day who's you know having four babies and a doctor told her oh she's too young to have her tubes tied she really wanted her tubes tied she was like I'm done I have four kids you know I'm done which is a very respectable number if you want more great I have patients who want 12 and I'm all for that I want them to have healthy 12 healthy pregnancies right but if you're done at one, two, or three, you know, it's not for us to put that on you, but I hear that here more than anywhere, which is you're too young or wait till you're married. Um, 
but at the same breath, turn around if that patient didn't want to be in that situation, would say no to to helping them take care of it. So even you know there there are double edged sides to that. Considering uh, people who are low income, we in, with Medicaid, for example. If you're on Medicaid, you have to sign a special permission slip to have your tube tied, and that's based upon our history, our terrible history of sterile, forced sterilization, particularly on poor Black women, women of color. Um, there is that history there of you know egregious, horrible behavior where sterilization was used and weaponized against poor people and against um, certain communities, and so that that consent is there, but it is sort of a, a you know, a hammer instead of a scalpel. Whereas if you're insured, you can decide the day of that you want your tube side and have the surgery. If you're on Medicaid, you have to wait 30 days. And if that paper hasn't been signed, you know, on the day you have your baby, you may not be able to get that surgery done and may not have access. So it just is a rippling effect of. Yeah, it's so unfortunate that people who like have Medicaid are already in like our low income and experience like more barriers than any person should have and then i think that just like given that their position even with the help from the government the barriers just accumulate so Mm -hmm. no matter what is done there will always be something that's going to stop them from getting the treatment that they deserve and at times need more than others Mm -hmm. right yeah like even just a lot of intangible barriers that we keep talking about with like patient provider connections and a lot of mistrust that's based in just past injustices. And I think that's just really important to remember that um, that like connection with your provider is really important and to have representation in the medical field is one of the most important steps we can take. Um, yeah, I mean, we, we need more docs who, you know, are trained up and that come from places like, like your program that are ready to really provide, you know, that care patients need. Um, yeah. it, it really does matter. Yeah, it's just so unfortunate that the policies that are passed into law are the decision makers tend to have no impact of them and patients and people need to be treated on a case-by-case basis. So it's just hard to have such an extreme law that's gonna have a huge impact and more than anyone can imagine. And yeah, and I mean, my work has all, I mean, honestly, my work is centered not on abortion and access or even family planning. My my work is focused on maternal and infant mortality. And I think it's um, important to acknowledge the the connection there that it's it is absolutely directly related and you know the risk of pregnancies can be very dangerous pregnancy is very life-threatening the risk of any average pregnancy is more than than the risk of an abortion but I think when you see differences across states and even different differences across nations you can directly connect both maternal and infant mortality outcomes to the degree of reproductive access and freedom that population has. And when people can have wanted well-timed pregnancies when they're safe and they're um, chosen, they have better health outcomes. So when we look at a state like Mississippi and it's the continuous spectrum of poor birth and birth outcomes and infant outcomes, 
there it's not a coincidence that it, it is a state that there is less contraceptive access and there's less reproductive knowledge and um, then even further to access around abortion. So there is an overlap between the people who are fighting to reduce infant mortality and maternal mortality and are absolutely pro-choice and searching, you know, and, and supporting access to full spectrum reproductive care because we, we know that connection that that is absolutely there. Um, we are also fighting for when you go to reduce infant mortality, you're thinking about the lived conditions of the, the pregnant person. You're looking at their wages. You're looking at their ability to um, living in a safe environment, free from violence, um, food access, uh, just access to a safe home. We're living in, in Jackson, Mississippi. They still to this day have safe water issues. We're seeing um, higher crime rates, higher po this policing that can affect, we know the stress levels, the all of those things overlap, right? And so we are looking for like, the framework within reproductive justice, which you may have learned about in school around what is reproductive justice, it's really protecting that full scope that people should be able to give birth, not give birth and raise their children in, in safe, healthy environments and have full access to reproductive care. And, and I'm not quoting it perfectly, but Sister Song who, who defined that um, uh, framework and, and national leaders like the National Birth Equity uh, collaborative and Dr. Joy Claire Perry are often, you know, quoting that perspective of reproductive justice, really saying we, when you want to have a baby, we want you to fully be able to live, have access to safe food. We just had a formula shortage with no one acted upon. So it, the hypocrisy there is not left unseen. And, you know, when we are we're the same people trying to look at when, you know, those lives are really protected all the way through and that both moms and babies have reduced rates of, of mortality and morbidity. Um, so it is all connected. And I definitely do have fear around both those extreme cases that where a termination of pregnancy is needed to keep a mother's life safe, but I also worry just acts of desperation, um, homicide, Suicide. I really do fear that is being a result, and and I and I hundred percent agree with the perspective that you can't outlaw abortion. You can just outlaw safe abortion, and because I know people, you know, just see the desperation that that someone can be in in that circumstance. Um, so yeah, I think it's going to have a rippling effect, and sadly, more states, you know, will have statistics that look a lot more like Mississippi's, unfortunately. Yeah, it's really just devastating to see some of these disparities that you were talking about just in numbers based on income levels or different places in the United States. And I think I want to focus just on a more individual level, this kind of fear we're talking about and this fear that so many women and anyone, any birthing people across America are feeling. Mm -hmm. But what advice would you give? Or I know that people are really circulating so much stuff on social media, so much stuff that um, says to stock up on mifepristone or says to um, delete your period tracking apps, but coming from an OB-GYN, what, what advice would you really give these people? Anyone of birthing age? Yeah, I mean, it's, 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 it's so many levels, I think right now um, that 
we do absolutely need more of a national strategy around what's going to be done. And there's a lot of just people individually trying to navigate this and, and um, th there feels like that panic around what to do. Um, I know feels, feels scary. I think that um, one is just, you have a community to connect to of other people in the same situation and you know not feeling alone is really important. I feel like isolation and fear around these things is kind of what got us here that you don't want to talk about abortion, you want to talk about sex or birth control so people aren't going to say out loud like hey I need birth control or I had a contraceptive failure um, or it happened to me and I think the more we're able to speak out loud about it and create community around it is really important that it's not about shame, it's just part of life. And I think the more we can you know, create safe spaces to talk about, it's really important. Um, having definitely, I mean, some of us are privileged that we have, if I say go have a doctor or have someone you can go to, that's already a point of privilege, period. Um, there are apps out there, there are national services out there if you're caught in that situation. But um, if, that you can go to and maybe gain gain access, but certainly there need there will need to be organizing. There will need to be a strategy around this because we are already in a situation with such disparate access, you know, and and people are even confused about what is happening in their state. You know, some people out there thinking they don't have access when they do, and some people who don't who already didn't, you know, don't, don't know what their choices are. So there will have to be some unifying direction for everybody. But um, certainly if you're already in a place that, that has access and you are in the position to educate others, if you're in the position to um, speak about it, if you're, you're, you're able to, to do that, then, then you should. Um, I, I think we have to really think critically about our full spectrum of, of reproductive freedoms, including birth control, and think about policies to protect that. I don't think we can assume anything is particularly sacred or safe, and that we have to be active politically, certainly with voting, registering to vote, making the connections there. That's like a number one priority at this point for everybody is to, is to understand the weight of that. Um, but, but absolutely, I mean, hopefully those places that can provide full spectrum contraceptive care are, are going to continue to do so. Those that are kind of doing less should think about how they can do more um, in terms of simple things like same day access. You know, we should be pushing for, you know, birth control to be over the counter. There's really no good reason that progesterone only birth control isn't over the counter. I mean, you can you can um, put warnings on anything. And certainly if tobacco can be sold over the counter, which absolutely kills you know, millions of people over generations, then there's no reason a progesterone only pill at the minimum should be available over the counter. So we have to think about the proactive things, but then we also know there are just gonna be people fighting at every level. Um, but uh, it's, it's not to panic, but hopefully to, to organize and connect with I don't know, um, there are local movements and local experts on this matter, and hopefully people will gain access to a trusted clinical advisor or provider, um, even if they're not in their own state. So knowing that there's lots of telehealth options, 
um, just to walk through what to do, you know, just to really have somebody walk through what to do. But that's kind of a broad answer because I think right now we're, we are all reeling about what, and I don't think anyone has a single, you know, easy answer for this. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say this, it is, it, it's, 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 if it wasn't um, clearly an, an, an infringement upon both personal choice, but really it's going to have massive health and public health implications. Like as a medical doctor, as a public health professional, there's no neutral position you can have on this to state there's any evidence to suggest that this will have a positive impact on the overall you know, individual health or public health statistics. And so how do we prepare for that? And how do we balance that all the while trying to, you know, I think, it, you know, ships don't turn very quickly. And so it's going to be time, it's going to take time. And um, we have to be prepared for this period of, you know, of, uh, of turmoil, as it feels like, but, you know, it's where we're at. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing. I and um, we completely agree. Definitely, like when COVID nineteen first hit, there was a lot of misinformation. Mm -hmm. So now I'm trying to figure out that, like, given that everything depends on individual states <clears throat> in terms of like the resources available and how people can reach out, I just think that it would be difficult. As I'm sure, different hospitals are going to have different policies within each state, mm -hmm. and physicians themselves will have their own personal views mm -hmm. so i guess we were just wondering um what differences have you found working with colleagues that may not share the same views as you just in terms of the hospital setting at the workplace mm -hmm. how you navigate that i mean it is like i said working in a hospital where it's already been banned it almost it doesn't come up as much right like it just isn't there so you don't have to deal with that conflict as as readily but i know you know you go back to work and and this is where we're going to see a lot of that discrepancy and it's going to be tough in this health field right like if you're in health or you're in medicine and you know just having water cooler conversations about what happened is going to create some some potential real divides but i think um i don't i don't just you know i think again the science is there, the data is there, the public health is there. It doesn't, it's not a political thing. It is as clear as tobacco is bad for you, right? Like we know that the connection will have significant health complications or not even just complications, implications. So to anyone who isn't, you know, you're, you're trying to engage what feels like a non-political conversation about it is to say, well, what do we do when? What, how are we going to then prevent these outcomes from getting worse? What is the solution? Like they haven't been presented as of yet, but I think um, just staying focused on the goal. Like I run a mortality review. We spend a lot of time debating and talking about a lot of things. And I have to often remind some people that it doesn't, that didn't say that person's already gone and talking hasn't saved a single life until we figure out what we could do to protect people tomorrow. And until we're saving lives, we, we're, we're failing pretty much. So I think we just have to keep the scope in mind that thinking about things and talking about things are important, but in the end you have to think like what is going to have a meaningful impact to, to get the outcomes we claim we want, right? Like if we want healthy moms and babies, 
what are we going to do about it? What is absolutely necessary that we can do today if we want? And this is, again, I say moms and babies or pregnant people, birthing people, because that's the space I'm in around reducing maternal and infant mortality. But um, when, but that's been our mission. And then people may say like, oh, this is a good thing. You know, there'll be more babies. And we're like, no, there's no data around that. We're going to be facing, you know, potentially worse infant and maternal health outcomes. So what are we going to do about it? Are we going to extend Medicaid postpartum for a year? Or so, you know, moms have access to, to postpartum care and contraceptive care and, and, are we going to expand Medicaid so people are able to take care of the babies that they have? You know, what policies are we actually going to enact? So I think um, keeping the focus on the goal and keeping people held to, you know, where's the data? This is why your lab exists, right? You're generating the data to demonstrate the what works, what doesn't. Um, and so I think making those connections clear um, and sticking to that is, 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 is going to be important when there's conflict around truth, right? And so, um, I, again, with doing a maternal mortality, I, some of our states will like get asked what have been the number of abortions that have led to maternal deaths, and there pretty much have not been any. It takes, you know, another, I know another state that had to include that in their report, took them over 10 years just to even get a case to report. So it isn't, you know, so this is real facts, and we can, you know, stick to facts about the public health impact it's going to have and the and the health impact it's going to have um overall so yeah thank you for sharing that i think it is really important like like you said to find the thing that unifies us instead of the things that divide us and i think within the medical field it's really a lot about um finding the way to help the most people and finding the way to make the biggest impact which completely agree with and i think to definitely bind us together instead of tear us apart so we also just wanted to take a moment and just thank you from the bottom of our heart for just being so candid and for speaking with us about such, uh, it's such a deep rooted and traumatic issue for a lot of people. So we really appreciate all the information that you provided us today because I know we learned so much. So I can only hope that yeah, this- Thank you so much. It's been enlightening. And like, it's great to be able to talk to some, like a medical professional as great as you. <laughs> Oh, no, that's really nice. Well, hopefully you're all part of that future. Again, I think when we were planning this talk, it was really a different world a few weeks ago. Like definitely, yeah. like I said, it wasn't, this hasn't been my focus, but I think that is the point is that we, we can't, if we're in this space around public health or if we're in this space around, you know, the health of women or reproductive health or even maternal health, this is not an area that's, you know, something happening over there. This is not something like, oh, that's not my topic. Like I'm an OBGYN. So this is an extremely jarring um, moment because even if you're a GYN oncologist, you have had to take care of patients that develop cervical cancer and cannot get treatment, right? Like they're going to die with some degrees of that. Your, your mental health therapist and your, or your mental health provider, um, or you're just, you know, a college student trying to graduate and which we all are right like any of us who've gotten to med school have just been somebody who was like I have a plan in my life and this is not part of it is being a mother and if I did not have access to that you're you know you're this in so many ways your life is is fully disrupted and and the reasons don't matter that's the whole point you don't get to pick and choose um, as a provider, you shouldn't get to pick and choose. That's the whole point around choice is just, you know, respecting people's 
bodily autonomy. And it's hard to, again, it's not like I've had these, this is my first podcast ever. So this is interesting. Thank you for being my first podcast. But I do a lot of talks. I don't, I haven't had to say abortion in, in a long time. Like I talk about maternal and infant mortality. It's not a topic I have to talk about a lot. But when it's gone, which probably is the problem that we've all spent too long acting like it doesn't impact a lot of our lives. Um, I think those of us in public health have to be honest and, and, and stand with the facts and stand with the, um, the science around this and, and that we can't be silent because it absolutely is, 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 is a salient issue for all of us in this space right now. So, um, so yeah, I, I, I do a lecture. I have a contraception clinic that you know medical students rotate through and i often just tell them these stories that you know whatever field they're going into if they're taking care of reproductive age people this is a topic they have to think okay. about they have to think about it because it does a disservice to them if they're doing any kind of surgery treating somebody's kidney treating somebody's heart and they're not taking into consideration what this person's reproductive life is they're gonna there's no medical condition that pregnancy does not make more complicated period. Your risk of mortality is going up, risk of complications going up. So as medical professionals, there's no feel that's like, oh, this is not my, my, my concern. Um, it absolutely is. And so I think there are, I've been saying to myself lately, like there are no more fences to sit on. You know, you can't be on a fence. You can't be quiet about it because then you're going to be kind of um, ignoring something that genuinely is a threat to a thing you took an oath to uphold and protect as a, as a clinician. So that's where we're at now. Um, but thank you for the opportunity and good luck to all the students in your classes and um, good luck. I was just, I was there not too long ago. <laughs> I promise I had no dreams. I had no aspirations of having so many titles. It's just, it was one thing after the other. I promise it was a decision either as a four-year-old or somewhere in my sophomore years of high school, but you can absolutely uh, go and have a massive <laughs> impact in your life. Just, just make that choice and, and, and go there and do it. So good luck to everybody. Thank you so much. And we really, really want to send our biggest gratitude for recording this episode and for being your first podcast, which is super exciting. Yeah, <laughs> <we're so honored. laughs> Thank oh. you. All right. Well, thanks again. Thank you. And you can check out The Mother Lab at themotherlab.org and on all of our social media. So thank you for listening to the podcast number seven.